Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And uh, Alistair, you're, you're still in France and I am still in Africa, with which a big apology, please, to listeners, because we're recording this on Monday afternoon. Um, I have left my family. We are, we're very, very lucky. We're on a safari in Kenya and we've been looking at wonderful animals with a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. But I've left them for three hours to try to find my way to an internet connection to record this. But that means that we are recording at a time when it's still not clear exactly what's happening in conservative leadership. But it, my guess is, and I'm betting hard on this, and please, you know, I'll be humiliated if I'm not right, that Rishi Sunak is going to be the only one who will cross 100 backers, which is, means Rishi Sunak will be our next prime minister. And I'm going to record on that basis. And if I'm wrong, you can all laugh at me. Well, you wouldn't. I mean, I think that would be harsh to laugh at you, Rory. I think we'll be, I, I will be uh, just reflecting on the fact that we will now have had five conservative prime ministers in six years. It really is the sort of thing we used to laugh at Italy for. So we've gone Cameron, May, Johnson, Truss, and now Rishi Sunak. And we had that sort of convulsion at the weekend as the attention seeker in chief and the charlatan in chief decided that what the country needed was for him to come back and uh, expose us to more lies and law breaking, no doubt. That's gone. I suspect that his statement, I don't know how many untruths there would have been in his statement last night that he'd got over the limit, but decided. Oh, it's, it's, it's infuriating. Can, can we just cut in on that just for our, uh, our listeners, stroke readers of the podcast? Um, so for those of you who didn't follow this statement, I mean, it was eye-wateringly vain. I mean, it was like the kind of thing that you'd see from Donald Trump. Essentially, he is so competitive, he could not bear to admit, as far as I'm concerned, that he, he wasn't going to make it. He had about 50 declared supporters, and he claims that he got something like 102. So he's trying to claim that he just mm. crossed the numbers. I don't believe it for a moment. I think the only reason that I don't, I can't imagine that there will be people who would have been backing Boris Johnson who would have been doing it secretly. The people who were backing Boris Johnson would have been doing it openly, looking for jobs in Boris Johnson's cabinet. So the reality is, unless he tells us differently, he probably only had about 50 out of the 350 Conservative MPs. Thank goodness. Right. So he had, you know, less than a sixth of them. But he's also, I mean, I think the whole thing was. He probably did. He did think deep down it might be possible. I don't know. But one thing we know about Johnson, that he loves being talked about, loves being the center of attention, but also presumably has some self-awareness enough to know that he has a massive job on to rehabilitate his reputation. So he wanted the airwaves to be full of people saying the guy's a winner, when in fact, I think that's the Johnson of old, not the Johnson of today, uh, that people would forget, as I'm afraid far too many in the media were far too keen to forget about what actually led to his demise. It just became a sort of a numbers game. Um, but I doubt whether he got more than the ones that declared, maybe a few that would were trying to sort of keep a foot in the Sunak camp in case Sunak won. So I just I just think that what we're seeing is the, I don't know if you saw Rory on the BBC last week, I got a mild ticking, uh, very mild because it turned out that Ofcom didn't object. But I, I, I did say that uh, Johnson was like the turd that you can't flush away in the toilet. But I think he is now being flushed away. And he said in his, the other thing he said in his statement was that he would be back 
and he saw himself possibly as a contender in 2024 or whenever. I mean, just go away. You're deluded. It's very Trumpian, Trumpian language, isn't it? It's very sort of big Z, I'm very successful, I'm the biggest. I mean, so the last few days, I've been overwhelmed by the number of people who suggested I should once again contest it. I've been attracted because I led our party into a massive election victory less than three years ago. And I believe I'm therefore uniquely placed to avert a general election now. (laughs) I believe I'm well placed to deliver a conservative victory in 2024. Tonight, I can confirm that I've cleared the very high hurdle of 102 nominations, including a proposer and a seconder. I don't know why he put that in. I mean, including a proposer and a seconder. He had 102. Why was he struggling to get two people? Um, Anyway, the whole thing was extraordinary. (laughs) It's a sort of massive, sort of narcissistic, egotistic rant. Mm. There's therefore a very good chance that I would be successful in the election with Conservative Party members, and that I could indeed be back in Downing Street on Friday. Unbelievable. I believe I have much to offer, but I'm afraid that it's simply not the right time. In other words, he's at his Cincinnatus, except Cincinnatus famously is very sort of puritanical Roman who went back to his plough. Boris Johnson famously set off to the Caribbean in the middle of the parliamentary working week. Did you not think that was extraordinary as well, that he, there was next to no commentary about the fact that what on earth was he doing on yet another holiday when Parliament's sitting? And what do the people of Uxbridge think about the fact that they have this guy who appears to be as literally have zero interest in them, whatever. Except whenever I watch clips on TV and people in Uxbridge are interviewed, they're all like, oh, Boris, yeah, he's great. We're really good on Boris. Can't wait to have him back. It's it's extraordinary. But I, I, th- I think that is part of this sort of wretched. We saw this during Brexit. They feel they have to get a two that say this and two that say that. Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm sure that the people, sort of people who wander up to me on trains and I was at this football on, on Saturday and I didn't get, I got one person who said, oh, you know, I bet you're worried about Boris Johnson coming back. And, uh, but everybody else was a, was a sort of mix of disgust and nausea and what the hell's going on. So let's stop talking about Johnson. Let's talk about Rishi Sunak. He's going to be our youngest prime minister in modern history, a year younger than Tony Blair when Tony became prime minister. He's 42. Is he the shortest? I think he might be. He's five. What is he? About five foot six. He is quite five small. Seven. Yeah, he's definitely small. Churchill was five yeah. foot six and a half. Are you good on prime ministerial height, Rory? Born in the 1980s. Wow. Pretty amazing, huh? I feel old. I was born in the 50s, for God's sake. But, but I remember awful. when David Cameron came in, David Cameron was, so he's born in 66. So he was sort of 44 when he came in. He, I believe the claim then was that he was the youngest prime minister in something like 200 years of British history. But Blair had been the youngest before him. Uh, Liz Truss was very young. Uh, but Rishi Sunak's even younger. So uh, it's something we've talked about in the podcast before. It's part of the acceleration of British politics that somehow the days when Gladstone could sort of go into opposition, come back again and be prime minister again in his 80s seems to have been replaced by a world, except in the United States, of course, where the people slugging it out seem to be in their mid-70s. In Britain, you, you it looks like you've got to get younger and younger and younger. And, and we, we, before we um, did the recording with uh, President Hollande, our latest special guest, and before you joined us from Kenya, I was having a little chat in his office and we were, <laughs> he was talking about the, he'd been following the, the death of the Queen and the funeral and so forth. And that shot where you had the, the six living former prime ministers all lined up. And um, he was he was saying, you know, the way you lot are going, the next time you have a big sort of establishment event, what's the maximum number of living former prime ministers you could have? I mean, we've now got, since then, we've had already got two more. 
I mean, King Charles has barely been in the job and he's got his second prime minister to see in. It's, it's abs- absolutely unbelievable. And it's also a real sense. I mean, so traditionally, these roles went with seniority. And Churchill, I guess, had been in Parliament for almost 40 years before he became Prime Minister. Macmillan, I guess, had been in 20 or 30 before he became Prime Minister. I'm deliberately not Googling while I'm talking to you. Uh, but Rishi Sunak was elected in 2015. The guy's been in Parliament for seven years. It's mm. extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And, and even, you know, Keir Starmer only got in in 2010. I mean, it's very, very interesting. The replacement of the emphasis on experience, age, wisdom. I mean, these these guys, to become Prime Minister for a couple of hundred years, you had to really knock around quite a lot. You had to do senior positions for a long time before people took you seriously for these roles. I mean, how long do you think Callaghan would have been in before he became Prime Minister? Oh, he'd been around a long time. Um, just on to Sunak, Rory, you, you've talked before, a couple of times on the podcast before about how you and he used to share a desk in the House of Commons Library. What sort of, let's deepen the assessment a bit. I mean, I know you had other interactions, but now that, he, now that he's going to be the Prime Minister, what, what, what's your deeper and broader assessment of him as a, as a human being and as a politician? Well, I've gone round in a real circle on this. So when I first met him, I was really won over because he's very bright, He's very thoughtful, very charming. I was very proud that the Conservative Party had recruited somebody who was obviously so bright and talented. And I enjoyed my interactions with him. I guess the tension entered our relationship when he decided to commit early to Brexit. And I just couldn't understand it. I just couldn't begin to comprehend what he'd done. And I'm afraid I kind of teased him a bit about that. And he understandably didn't think that was very amusing. We then had standoffs over prisons. He was the minister responsible for collecting council tax. And I thought it was ridiculous that people should be sent to prison for not paying their council tax. And I went to him hoping that I'd get his agreement on that. And we had a very strange argument for half an hour where he was, again, very, very clever. But I felt like I was in a sort of schoolboy debating competition. I didn't feel I was really able to get over. This is ridiculous. People should not be in prison for not paying their council tax, not paying their TV license. This is not what prisons are for when they're already overcrowded, 83,000 people in prisons built for 63,000. So that was, I guess, a low point. And of course, I was also felt very, very um, sort of negative towards people who joined Boris Johnson's cabinet, because I thought Boris Johnson was such a bad person. I mean, one of the reasons why Mm. I refused to compromise with him, refused to rejoin the Conservative Party, is that I couldn't bear the idea of running with Boris Johnson's leader. I couldn't bear to put the put a leaflet through a door with his photograph on to mm. say that I think he'd be a good prime minister, let alone serve in his cabinet. I mean, actually, he he had a very interesting, I had an interesting conversation with Boris Johnson just before he took over where he got me into his office and said, in his very kind of charming and brilliant way, basically implied that he'd like me to continue in his cabinet. I don't know what he would have wanted me to do, maybe to stay as Secretary of State for International Development. And of course, knowing Boris Johnson, he might have changed his mind the next moment or might never have meant it anyway. But I had to say to him very clearly, I cannot possibly serve in your cabinet. I actually ran my whole leadership campaign saying I can't serve in your cabinet. Anyway, to cut to the chase, Rishi Sunak was prepared to serve in his cabinet, was prepared to be his Chancellor's Exchequer. So that worried me too. All that said, my goodness, I've been through the ringer on alternative conservative leadership candidates. And of course, at the end of the day, I have concluded that Rishi Sunak is by far better than Boris Johnson better than Liz Truss, better than half a dozen of the other candidates who ran in the leadership, and is probably the only leading conservative now that actually has a chance of being prudent, thoughtful, 
and restoring some degree of of grown up mature management. So roller coaster on Rishi Sunak. No, I, I think that's I think that's really interesting. And and of course, I know what you mean about going through the ringer. I mean, a, a part of me when Johnson threw his hat back in the ring thought, oh, this is great for Labour. But at the same time, I felt physically sick at the prospect that actually we might have him back and we might have to be talking about him. So, Rory, let me just say once more, let's try not to talk about Boris Johnson anymore on this podcast. Let's focus back on on Rishi Sunak. I'll tell you something, um, when I was presenting Good Morning Britain, I interviewed him one morning, I think it was during the Tory party conference, and I had a sense of somebody very prickly and very, and I'd heard this from people at the Treasury when he was there, very thin-skinned. Do you think he's fully aware? We talk, I talked last week about how people underestimate the gap between any other job in government and being prime minister. Do you think he has that bandwidth and that capacity to move up uh, in the way that he's about to? Well, I guess we'll find out. I mean, 42, as I say, is very, 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 very young. And unlike David Cameron or Tony Blair, who were the other two very young prime ministers that we've had in the last couple of hundred years, they had years in opposition to prepare, get their manifestos together, build the parties around them. And they had the enormous mandate from winning a huge election. I mean, you know, Tony Blair, extremely able politician, right? Obviously, extraordinary charisma, very good communicator. But part of what gave him that power is that he had delivered this incredible majority to a party that had felt in the early 90s, they might never win again. So- Mm. That allows you to silence the party. It means that in the case of Tony Blair, I can't remember, what, what was your majority again? That first time, 97? Oh, 100 and... <laughs> I sh- it's one of the sort of historical facts I should know right off, but it was, was it 179? I can't remember. Anyway, whatever it is... Uh, Dom, Dom's uh, looking uh, it up right now. Anyway, whatever the, whatever it is, there's you know, well over 100, maybe even 200 Labour MPs who felt that they owed their job to Tony Blair. And that's an incredible mandate. And that means even with all the divisions between the kind of left-wing Benites and all the things that could have torn the Labour Party apart. So I think David Cameron didn't have that kind of majority, but he had taken out the Labour Party that felt as though they were unbeatable. The Conservatives had struggled very hard in the early 2000s, late 90s. So again, there were lots of MPs. When when I came to the House of Commons in 2010, half the Parliamentary Conservative Party had been elected for the first time and felt they owed their seats largely to David Cameron. So that helps you when you're a very young prime minister. Rishi's coming in younger than all of them, but he doesn't have any of that stuff. Doesn't have any of that stuff happening. Nobody feels they owe their seat to Rishi Sunak. He hasn't won an unbeatable majority, and he's taking over a party that is so factionized, as you pointed out last time we chatted, that they're, they're already, the ERG's already on maneuvers. Well, I um, I was on over the weekend. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that the the bring back B-O-R-I-S, I never actually say the B word, um, campaigners, they set up all these WhatsApp groups, which were remarkably easy for their non-supporters to access. And I spent, I, when I was on the train back from the football at um, Sunderland, where I'm sure you shared my delight at our amazing comeback, Rory, from 2-0 to 4-2. Extraordinary victory. Thank you. Thank you. On the, tra- on the train back, I was in these WhatsApp groups, just sort of abusing myself at watching. But honestly, the stuff they were saying about Sunak was extraordinary. And I have to say, a lot of it was racist. What, what, sort, of, what, what sort of things were they saying? 
Well, for example, all Sunak's ever done is look after the tech companies, and it's basically all about helping his fellow Indians. There was that sort of thing. There was, there was just sort of it was it was just nasty and unpleasant stuff, and it was it was this kind of cult of um, of Johnson. It was very very odd. And then it, then you, you had one last night from David Campbell Bannerman basically saying it was time for a new party now that, you know, that this is really time to sort of clear it out. But you're absolutely right. He doesn't have that. People might, you know, respect him. Uh, Some of these people might respect him, but he doesn't have that kind of loyalty that he's going to need. And I think what was coming through loud and clear reading the exchanges on these groups was the the idea that it's going to be easy to bring the Tory party together. Um, and you talk about the, you know, 10, 11, 12 factions. I think it's very hard. And you, I think you said the other day that, you know, it's going to have to be somebody of extraordinary charisma and a great communicator. I'm not sure he's got that. I'm not sure he's got that. It's, it's, it's a very difficult job, isn't it? A very difficult job. I mean, he's incredibly able. I, I think he's got one big thing in his favor, which is that he clearly called out the mess that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng created, which will have given him a reputation for economic prudence and foresight. He is the person that the majority of MPs voted for last time. And my goodness, they've mustered behind him this time. I mean, the the figures at the moment at which we're recording suggest that of the declared figures, he's up, you know, in the 170 region. And Penny Mordaunt, his nearest rival, is only declaring in the high 20s. These are of declared MPs. There may be people who are covertly voting, but that's an extraordinary mandate. And it, it'll be interesting to work out who's not getting behind him, because many of the old One Nation, we talked about these factions, you, you'll see that his early supporters came from what I would call the sort of One Nation conservative left. And that was true last time around. I mean, a lot of the people who supported me in the leadership campaign, and there weren't that many of them actually, but a lot of them got behind Rishi Sunak. And that, that was striking to me that people who'd, um, who'd been for me saw in Rishi Sunak something, despite the fact he'd been a Brexiteer. But he's also got people like Suella Braverman, who's one of the kind of Spartan champions of the Brexit ERG right behind him. So he's managing at the moment to communicate to the left of the party that he's more thoughtful, more sensible, more grown up than Boris Johnson. But of course, the Brexiteers will be reassured that he voted Brexit. But the question is, can he keep that coalition together? Well, Steve Baker as well came out for him and, and made it very, very clear that he expects the ERG uh, mandate, as he sees it, to to continue to run. I also think, I don't know, I think that once you get to the level that he's now at and the profile. So, for example, there were lots of stories around during the eat out, what was it, out, help out to eat out to help out, um, where I think there was a sense that maybe he was, I don't know, that didn't go as well as he wanted it to. I think some of his tenure at the Treasury will now come under greater scrutiny. And I wonder as well where whether his, you know, really vast personal wealth, I mean, there was it 100 grand on a swimming pool quite recently. I think this is so we're in a cost of living crisis when he's going to have to be taking assuming he and, and Jeremy Hunt stays chancellor, they'll be taking some very, very tough spending decisions. I wonder whether that then does play in a way that thus far it hasn't. And even the thing about his green card, 
Um, and I do think your point, by the way, Rory, about the fact that he sat, literally sat alongside Boris Johnson in that cabinet, knowing who he was, knowing what he was, knowing that what they were being told to say was lies. And he was the main guy, if you remember, during the election campaign, Sunat was Johnson's main guy on the airwaves. If Johnson couldn't do big interviews, Sunat was the guy who stepped in. So obviously, having knifed him um, and brought him down with Javid at the end, that sort of distances him from that. But frankly, he I think Labour can really pin Sunak as part of the 12-year failure of the Tories. So he's, uh, all that's going to be really interesting. I also think that obviously the thing that we're, we, we haven't talked about explicitly, which is massive, really, really important, is that we're going to have our first Asian prime minister. And I think that's something we should be deeply proud of, really, really proud of. I think it's an extraordinary thing. I, I can't see any other European country doing that. And I think it's a real tribute to Britain that that has happened so comfortably, so quickly, and very few people are remarking on it. And his family story is pretty extraordinary. His his grandparents moved from Punjab uh, to uh, one lot to Kenya, another lot to Tanzania in, I guess, relatively... Um, was in clerical jobs, and then moved back to Britain in the uh, 1960s, migrated from East Africa in the 1960s. And so his father was born in, in Kenya, mother was born in Tanzania. He's part of a, a very strong British story. You know, that's a story that many, many people in Britain share, that movement from India to East Africa and then, then to Britain. And I think just as we should have been very proud in many ways of um, Sadiq Khan becoming mayor of London, I think we should be very proud of Rishi Sunak becoming prime minister. But obviously, I complain a lot about Sadiq Khan, and you will complain a lot about Rishi Sunak. That is true, but no, I, I do agree with that. I, th- I think I think that um, you know, and I, funny enough, I was I was saying to I, I was talking to François Hollande about the British scene earlier before we started the recording, and he was making that point that you know that's quite a big thing to have somebody of Indian heritage as the as the Prime Minister of the UK, and, he's, and he, he mentioned it in the context of, you know, particularly, we were talking, you know, before about empire in the context of, of our relationship with the Indian subcontinent uh, in the past. So that is a, that is a, a huge thing. I, I do think that one of the reasons the 1922 committee appear to have been pretty desperate to get this thing through without going to vote is because actually there is still an awful lot of racism amongst Conservative Party members. I saw some of that on the WhatsApp groups. But I think it will it will certainly help, I hope, the normalisation of Britain as a genuinely multicultural, multinational, multiracial country, which is a good thing. Um, anyway, let's take a break. Yeah, let's take a break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode is sponsored by The New European, and if you're a reader, you will know that I write for it every week as their editor-at-large, uh, but I do think it's been an absolutely brilliant addition to our media landscape. One of the great things in it is the cultural stuff. So there's, uh, Charlie Connolly writes something called Great European Lives, where he covers a figure such as Sevi Ballesteros, who older listeners <laughs> will remember, a great golfer, but also the French singer Sacha Distel. Uh, who, of course, is somebody who Alistair loves. So anyone interested in European culture too, not just politics. If you want to actually do something positive, support a new newspaper that is fighting back against the nationalist, populist, right-wing press that got us or helped to get us into the mess that we're in, then the New European really is the antidote to all their nationalistic brainwashing. They've got a very special offer exclusively for Restless Politics listeners. You can get full access to the New European Digital Edition for just a pound a week. Or if, like me, you love getting the actual newspaper delivered to your door, you get that as well for just £2 a week. That is less than the price of a coffee, and you'll have the satisfaction of helping support good, honest, high-quality journalism, which is, quite frankly, something we now need more than ever. Uh, and that is a point we also discussed with President Hollande. So subscribe today. Just visit www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash trip, T-R-I-P. That's www.theneweuropean.co.uk slash T-R-I-P. Welcome back to The Restless Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And I should start, Rory, listeners might be hearing a bit of sort of background noise. It's because I am still in President Hollande's office and, you know, we, we have to allow former presidents to carry on working, even if they're trying to be very, very quiet. OK, so um, I just want to if you hear shuffling of papers and envelopes and signatures. Thank you. And, and if you if you hear a weird noise in the background, that's because very kindly my hosts here in Kenya have turned on a generator to try to recharge my laptop. So I, that's uh, I'm feeling a bit ah, embarrassed okay. towards the environment, but the solar panels weren't able to recharge the laptop for some reason. Okay. Now, back quickly. Right. So you were telling us about Nadim Zahawi. What, what, what was the Nadim Zahawi news? Well, Nadim Zahawi, who, as you know, I control all his movements. I'm inside his head all the time, as we showed in the video that we put out a few weeks ago. Um, he wrote a piece yesterday for the Daily Telegraph, which he then tweeted. He confirmed his enduring love and support for Boris Johnson. And 
literally two minutes later, Boris Johnson announced he was pulling out. And as fast as you could say, I'm determined to get a job, whoever's prime minister, Nadim Sahawi then announced, I'm backing Rishi. It's a bit unfortunate because, of course, famously, he joined, he, he became Boris Johnson's chancellor, didn't he? And then he had to move within 24 hours to topple Boris Johnson. And then he had to put out a tweet saying uh, that he, Boris had learned from his mistakes and he was a different Boris from the one that he'd known two months earlier. And now he's, I mean, it, it's, it's a real, it's a, it's a terrible slope slipping back and forth. He, he did a tw- he did a tweet yes yesterday, which began with the words "When I was Chancellor," and I think it's a bit like when I Rory when I say as I often do when I played football with Diego Maradona, I do know that I I come across as a complete prat, and I'm exaggerating my importance as a footballer. But to start for him to say when I was Chancellor, I mean he was there for about two minutes. Now let me just put on the record. Um, I really like, like Nadim Zahawi, and I, I'm sorry for him, and I'm sorry that these all these things have happened. He is one of the most, you know, he joined with me in 2010. He's one of the most lovely, warm-hearted uh, colleagues, and um, you know, I feel I feel embarrassed that this has happened to him, but I think he's a great guy, and I'm sorry that he's getting stuck in this way. There we go. It's, I, I have to say, it's a, it's a minor part of a bigger story. Just on Rishi Sunak, so we know. A fair bit about him. We know about his kind of life story a fair bit. I'm sure there's more to come. We know what he was like as Chancellor of the Exchequer, but not in a very normal, you know, he, he, I, I'm sure he wasn't enjoying spending billions on furlough schemes and, and so forth. We know that he's on the right of the Conservative Party. I've always seen him as one of these kind of sovereign individual types. That could be fair or unfair. I don't know. We know that he's from an incredibly wealthy family. But I don't have a clue, for example, other than the fact that he voted Brexit, I don't have a clue what his approach to foreign policy is going to be, what his view of the United States is, what his view of China is, what his view of Russia is. I just don't know what his foreign policy views are. And that's going to be become quite important quite quickly will become very important just just on the record he's his parents are not incredibly wealthy i mean his parents um his father's a, a gp um he, his wife's family is the extraordinary story his his wife's father founded infosys which was and it's really the kind of founder of basically the founder of the amazing technology revolution in india built as ceo mm. over i guess 30 years um this incredible global company from relatively modest beginnings. It's, it's a pretty amazing story uh, there. But you're right, he's he's married the daughter and heiress. So it'd be like marrying um, kind of, I guess, I don't know, Bill Gates's daughter or something. I mean, you end up with a huge, huge, um, huge fortune. I think 770 million pounds is what they claim. But I don't, who knows what the, what, what the numbers are. By the time you're that wealthy, it's quite difficult to to make any sense of that at all. Um, on foreign policy, he's not been foreign secretary, and this was the problem with Liz Truss. And again, like Liz Truss, he hasn't spoken much about foreign affairs. So it's quite difficult finding one's way towards that. I, I guess, you know, like many Brexiteers, he would have made pro-Chinese comments because a lot of the Brexit gamble was about being able to swap slow growth in Europe for rapid growth in China. And of course, that bet is looking much more difficult now, isn't it? Mm, mm. But we don't really know that much about him, whether he has a real genuine political philosophy. And of course, he is coming in. You've said this before. He's coming in at an incredibly difficult time, um, politically, economically. Uh, his party, I think, is going to tear itself apart pretty quickly. And do you think if he, I mean, look, this is 
me sort of looking way into a future that may come, may not. But let's just imagine that the Conservative Party does crash and burn again. We can't do it. We can't. Surely five, five prime ministers in six years. I mean, I think there should be a general election anyway, but they can't do it again, can they? Surely this has to be it in terms of changes of prime minister. <laughs> I, think, I think they will definitely think this has to be it. And uh, I, I think, I think you, you can't keep doing this. And, but, but if they, if it collapses again, I mean, I think people will simply give up because the reason it will collapse again is that people have just totally lost any, um, any confidence that they can hold the party together. It'll become an unmanageable collapsing coalition. Um, one of the problems he's going to face is putting a, putting a cabinet together. Lots of, um, quite talented, uh, ministers, left over the last few years. Quite a lot more have signaled they're leaving. But I'd like to see, given his youth, that he starts bringing back some of the people who were ministers under previous governments. You know, there are people like Nick Gibb, who's a very good education minister. Be nice to see brought back. Well, uh, Rory, Rory we, could, we could be here all day on that one, Rory. Well, really? You think there's a lot, a lot we could bring back no, I in? I think so. Yeah, I think, you're, you're, you, you, I think you and I are going to differ hugely on the record of the Cameron and May governments on education. But let's not, let's not go there because we'll disagree disagreeably on that one. Let, but what about Michael Gove? Do you think you should bring back Michael Gove? And do you think there's also a case for bringing back Theresa May? I think you should bring back Michael Gove. He should make Theresa May foreign secretary would be a good quick move. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see him bring in Mel Stride, who's chair of the Treasury Committee. I'd like to see... There are people that haven't been promoted that should have done, and I would have loved to see running for leader now. I, I keep talking about Gillian Keegan, who's an African minister at the moment, but very, very talented. Alex Chalk, who's a, a lawyer, very smart, thoughtful guy who rec- represents Cheltenham. There is talent there, and it would be nice to see it brought in. What worries me is that a lot of ideologues without much substance have been promoted very, very quickly into the cabinet without much behind them. And they're mm. going to feel that they should be clinging on because Boris Johnson put them in. He created a cabinet, essentially, where there were far too many loyalists without much substance to them and left on the back benches. Many people, or as junior ministers, many people with a bit of spirit and drive to them. I'd like to see Victoria Prentice in a more senior position. But what some listeners won't have heard of these people, partly because Boris Johnson deliberately and Liz Trust deliberately excluded them from senior office. But but also, if he brings in all this new talent that you're describing, that means pushing out other people, making them even angrier, even more bitter. Do you think he's got the political management skills that are going to be called upon to hold this thing together? Because I think I think that's a real, you know, if you think about just just look at the damage that Michael Gove did very subtly and sometimes less subtly to Liz Truss. But that was because he was on the outside. So. Like you bring in Theresa May, as let's say he did bring her in as foreign secretary, that means you're getting rid of James Cleverly. Um, he's going to be offside. I think if he brings in some of the other people you mentioned, presumably that means there's no place for Suella Braverman, no place for Steve Baker, who's currently ludicrously a minister in Northern Ireland. So these are huge problems that he's going to have to both solve and then create more problems. And this is one of the reasons why... Um these big parties in the end have a sort of lifespan. They can't keep going. I mean, this is what in in a way was one of the things that presumably began to be a bit of a problem for Gordon Brown as well, that after you've been in office 
for a few years, you have had to throw quite a lot of senior people out of the cabinet. You've got quite a lot of younger people who are angry that they haven't been promoted. You can get away with that more easily in the first five years when you're on the honeymoon period. But as years go on, you've got more and more people who feel that they're big beasts who've been in the cabinet who are bitter about not being back in and more and more younger people who feel they're excluded. So you're absolutely right. There are some really impressive people out there. I would love a conservative party that had a friend of mine called Damien Hines. So I think he's a fantastic guy. I'd love to see him back in the cabinet. But trying to do that is going to cause problems. And if you add to that the factionalization, this point that I keep making, that there are now 12 different conservative parties as a kind of Singapore conservative party. There's a Jacob Rees-Mogg conservative party, which is a sort of Victorian conservative party. There's the fragments of a pro-European conservative party. There's Steve Baker's Christian conservative party. All these types of parties pushing in different directions. There's the Libertarians. There are the Libertarians. There's the Liz Truss quasi-Quartine conservative party. You've noticed the Institute for Economic Affairs, your great favorite Tufton Street think tank out there saying the problem was that it wasn't implemented correctly. They keep saying that these decisions, these economic decisions were, were absolutely fine. They just weren't implemented correctly, which is... That, was very ben, that is very Benite. Very it's Benite, very isn't, benite it? isn't it? Yeah. We, didn't, the we weren't socialist enough. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We shall see. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how Rishi Sunak beds in, as you say, to see what his team is, who he surrounds himself with, um, and also how the Labour Party reacts to it and how the other parties as well. But um, I just hope to God we have a general election sooner rather than later because I honestly, it's so nice to be in France, Roy. I know they've got massive problems at the moment, but it feels quite sort of stable and normal and there's no <laughs> freneticism going around the place. How's Kenya? Well, Kenya's, Kenya's got some trouble. I mean, we, we should talk about this sometime. I mean, Africa in general uh, is mm. at the receiving end of all the horrors of the world and As Britain and Europe and the United States hit economic problems and feel poorer, they're going to be providing less and less assistance at exactly the moment Mm. when we need debt forgiveness here. We need massive development programs. We need real thought about food security in Africa, climate change. I mean, here in Kenya, I'm in a place where there's barely been any rain for three years. You can see that all the cattle Mm. have got their bones sticking out of their flesh. I mean, it's, it's pretty bleak. And that's much, much mm. worse up in Somalia and, and northern Kenya. Well, Rory, um, I just want to say, uh, if you read volumes one to eight of my diaries, you will find many accounts of me breaking into holidays to the annoyance of my family. And I do not recommend that you do it too often. So thank you for breaking into your holiday today. We've recorded, this is the main podcast. We've recorded a Q&A, which will be going out later in the week. We've recorded an interview with President Hollande. And tomorrow I shall be flying solo, insisting that you have your holiday, when I do an interview with the former Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, which will be going out in the near future as well. So have a nice holiday. And um, try not to worry about either the podcast ratings. They're doing very, very well, Rory, not to worry. And all the future of the country, which is not doing quite as well. Merci. Au revoir. À bientôt.